female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Hello there, guys, gals, and my non-binary pals. Welcome back to Man. It is the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. Whether it's bitings, scratchings, maulings, or clawings, we're here to talk about it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Man Eater Movies. Today, we are talking about a fantastic Man Eater movie called The Ghost and the Darkness. This is the first time we're doing a Man Eater movie based off an actual Man Eater story that we've covered before on the podcast. So I'm very excited for that. But first, it's time for the b b b beef of the week. So, what is the beef of the week this week? Um, my beef of the week this week is that it's too damn hot. I'm hot, guys. About a week ago, I um, I thought it would be a great idea to get some color, you know, tan up a little bit, because I'm very pale. I'm very wide. I went swimming in a river recently with some friends, and all anyone could talk about was how much of a ghost I look like. Um, so I thought it would be a good time to, you know, catch some rays, try to tan up a little bit, uh, sat on the balcony, shirtless, read a script, only for about 45 minutes. I thought that wouldn't be too bad. No, 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 no. It's a week later and I'm peeling. I look like one of those gross lizards on TikTok where, you know, the owner is like, you know, peeling bits of their flaky skin out of their nostrils. That's my entire like left collarbone right now. So my beef of the week is that I'm a bit tinged. I'm a bit singed. Um, and, and honestly, the color hasn't even come up. I peeled and I'm back to my disgusting albino self. So yeah, my beef of the week, I guess it's not really with the sun. That's a bit egotistical to pick a beef with the sun. Um, but actually, yeah, fuck the sun. I'm, I'm over it. I'm not, I no longer worship the sun. Okay. Uh, that's my beef of the week. I'd love to know what yours is on, uh, anywhere. Just tell me, why are you mad this week? What's grinding your gears? Okay. Beef over. Speaking of looking like a ghost, though, we are talking about The Ghost and the Darkness. Uh, a pretty good film, a relatively good man eater film. I enjoyed it. I, I literally just finished watching it, actually. I finished watching it and uh, jumped onto the computer to record this episode. So uh, let's, you know, I'm, uh, let's not waffle on. Let's get stuck into it. Let's talk about The Ghost and the Darkness. So, The Ghost and the Darkness is a 1996 historical action film directed by Stephen Hopkins, and it stars Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas. The screenplay was written by William Goldman, and it's a fictionalized account of the Savo man-eating lions, a pair of male lions that terrorized workers in and around Savo in Kenya during the building, building of the Uganda-Mombasa Railway in East Africa in 1984. Uh, 1980, sorry, so as I mentioned in the little introduction to this episode, we have talked about the Savo Manding Lions before. In fact, if you go back all the way back to, I think, 2021, uh, you can listen to episode five. There's a whole episode on the Manning Lions. Um, that episode, the main historical source that I used was a book called The Man-Eaters, the Man-Eaters of Savo. Uh, and that book was written by John Henry Patterson, and that same book is actually uh, the basis for the screenplay of this movie. In fact, the main character of this movie, played by Val Kilmer, uh, is John Henry Patterson. 
He plays the person who wrote the book. Uh, so I'm going to give you basically a brief synopsis of the play, of the of the film, a little bit of information from behind the scenes, and then we'll talk about my actual thoughts on the movie and how it holds up compared to the other man in the movies we've talked about and how it goes, uh, you know, how it fares as a historical uh you know, a, not a documentary, but a historical film, what it gets right and what it gets wrong. And there, it gets a lot right, um, but it also gets quite a little bit wrong as well. So let's talk about the plot. Uh, so the movie opens in 1898 and Robert Beaumont, who is played by uh, that guy from England. What's his name? Um, I'm, I've already forgot his name. Uh, oh, Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson. You'd know Tom Wilkinson. I recently watched him in Rush Hour. He's like a British guy. He plays an asshole a lot. He was in that um, Tom Cruise movie as well, Valkyrie. He played, um, so, I don't know, was a Sergeant Colonel from big piece of shit. And he was a big piece of shit in this film too. So Robert Beaumont, uh, he's the primary primary financier of a railway project in Savo, Kenya. And he's seeking out the expertise of Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, who is an Irish uh, military engineer, and he wants to get the project back on schedule. Um, one interesting thing that we discover about this character of Robert Beaumont is that he doesn't really give a shit about anything. He's really only doing this to get a knighthood. And, uh, you know, I don't actually know if he ended up getting that knighthood. Uh, but yes, anyway, so he's basically hired Lieutenant John Henry Patterson to go to Savo to build this bridge for him. He's built bridges before, and he has quite a lot of experience building uh, bridges. Never in Africa, though. He hasn't been to Africa before, but he does have quite a reputation after his work in India. So Patterson has agreed uh, to travel to Savo, uh, but before he does, he says goodbye to his wife, Helena. Helena is played by... Uh, one of my favorite actors in the world, actually, Emily Mortimer, um, who you might recognize as Mackenzie McHale from The Newsroom, which is incidentally one of, if not my favorite uh, television show ever. If you haven't watched The Newsroom, like, I don't know what to tell you. Go watch it. I would even say go and watch it before you watch The Man of Sava because it's better than this movie. Uh, but she's in this movie anyway, only a little bit, but she's great. She's preggers, by the way. She's got uh, a baby on the way. She's got a bun in the oven, uh, their first child, um, and basically he's promised that he'll be back uh, in time for the birth of their child in f six months. Uh, um Robert Beaumont has given John Henry Patterson uh, five months to complete the bridge. Spoiler alert, uh, he doesn't go according to schedule, okay? So he's left uh, England. He says goodbye to Helena uh, and basically, and also goodbye to their unborn child. And he's left and he's in Africa. So he arrives in Africa and the first person he meets is a supervisor named Angus Starling. So Angus Starling is a really good character, actually. He's played by, um, Angus Starling is played by Brian McArdle. And I've never actually seen him in anything else, but I'm going to see if he's actually done anything. Brian McArdle, he, he was actually quite good. He's only in the movie for a little bit. Uh, he, what had he done recently? Not a lot recently. Uh, anything I'd recognize? No, it doesn't seem like he's a kind of that kind of actor that you might've heard of. He did Outlander in 2015. Sir Marcus Mackenrock. Uh, I'd never seen the show. Eh, anyway, he's good and he meets him and he's basically this like uh, Christian guy who's trying to convert all of Africa, uh, but he's fun. He's a nice guy. Um, so he meets him. He also meets um, Samuel, who also narrates the movie as well. Samuel is a Kenyan foreman. Um, he's played by uh, jo John Carney. Uh, and Samuel's a great character as well. It's weird though. They give him these like uh, 
droopy like earlobes. You know how like in some African tribes they put those big discs in the ears. Um, it's like that, but imagine the discs have gone out of the ears, so they're big, big and floppy. Um, but they look really fake. It looks like someone's just got brown plasticine and attached them to the guy's actual ears. So that's that's a negative right there. It didn't look great. Uh, but Samuel, regardless of his weird ears, is a cool uh, character and, and a very important character. He also meets Doctor David Hawthorne. So Hawthorne is the doctor who is in charge of a, um, I guess, what would you call it? Like a little military hospital at the Savo uh, camp. Um, he's dealing with a sort of a, a malaria outbreak as well, but he also informs Patterson that that day, uh, one of his um, orderlies had been attacked by a man-eating lion. Um, so that same night, Patterson, he goes to sort of prove himself to all the workers. Uh, he basically kills that lion that had attacked the orderly. So he earns the respect of the laborers and the doctor, um, and he basically gets them to, to resume their daily activities safely um, because of the lion attacks. Just like in real life, uh, the, the workers were, you know, unwilling to complete their work uh, because they were too scared of dying, which is very fair. So a few weeks later... Um, Mahina, who's a construction foreman. Oh, we should talk about Mahina. Mahina as well. Mahina is played by um, Henry Selle. Henry Selle. He's a South African... Oh, he was a South African actor. It looks like he passed away. Um, he was a cool character as well. We, we don't get a lot of time um, with Mahina. But uh, yeah, he, he basically... Tell, talks about how um, he has also killed a lion with his bare hands and he's uh, very well respected by all the other people in the camp um, and, you know, he's kind of viewed as this, like, strong warrior type. Um, so he's, he's a cool character, but, yeah, like I said, we don't get a lot of time with him because a few weeks later, Mahina, while everyone's asleep, he is woken up and dragged out of his tent and he's dragged, like, a kilometer away um, and killed and eaten by the lion. Uh, and obviously everyone wakes up at that and uh, freaks out. At sunrise, they find his mutilated body um, Patterson shoots a bunch of vultures to try and get them to stop pecking at him, but Mahina is certainly gone, definitely dead. Um, the doctor basically um, does an autopsy uh, on, on the victim, but he doesn't really need to, you know, examine much. It's pretty clear what's happened. They say that the the, the, uh, the lions licked through Mahina's skin so they could drink his blood, and then they started consuming him from the feet up. And that actually is quite accurate. It does go along with what we heard in uh, episode five of this show um, and in the book, The Man It Is Osavo. Um, so yeah, they find uh, yeah they find his remains. They do an autopsy. Um, Patterson tries to hunt again at nighttime, trying to catch the lion that ate Mahina. Um, but in the morning, he's informed by Starling that the corpse of a second worker has been found at the opposite end of the camp from his position. So he's been uh, sort of unwittingly uh, outwitted by uh, by the lion. So uh, the you know the workers are now starting to lose what respect that they briefly had for Patterson. Patterson um, heeds some advice from Samuel, and he employs the workers in the building of thorn fences, uh, which we know are called bombas, B-O-M-A's, bombas. Uh, they form these fences around the tents in order to prevent lions from entering. This has limited success. Several days later, in broad daylight, while everyone's working, a lion jumps over the fence and kills another worker. As Patterson, Starling, and Samuel corner the lion while it's feasting on the body, a second lion leaps upon them from the top of the roof of the building that they're next to. It slices Starling across the throat and injures Patterson on the arm. Patterson recovers and attempts to shoot them, but both lions escape. Samuel states that there have never been a pair of man-eaters before, and they've always been solitary hunters. Uh, Samuel and uh, Patterson uh, basically pray for Starling, um, but with no avail. He dies. 
because God's not real. Uh, that's not part of the movie. That's just my own sort of projection onto onto this story. Uh, yep. So Starling's dead, and Patterson, uh, his reputation is taking a big whack now. The the, the uh, workers are really starting to turn against them. And speaking of which, they're led by a man named Abdullah. Abdullah is an Indian. Uh, Coolie, I think you would call them. I think that's what they, they call them, an Indian coolie, an Indian worker, basically, who's in charge. And he's beginning to turn on Patterson. Um, and you know what? I don't blame Abdullah. Abdullah's supposed to sort of be painted as an asshole, but in your in his shoes, you know, I would probably do the same thing as Abdullah. An interesting thing that they mentioned that Samuel mentions at the beginning of this movie is that no one in Savo gets along. No one, no one likes each other. Everyone hates each other. So he says, obviously, and I don't know why this is obvious. Maybe I'm missing some historical tidbit here, but um, obviously the Africans hate the Indians, and apparently the Indians hate the Indians. The Muslims hate the Hindus. The Hindus love the cows, and the Muslims eat the cows. Um, yeah. And no one's getting along. Uh, but obviously, you know, through the leadership of Patterson and and also Starling um, and, you know, combating this mutual uh, evil, I guess, this big, big problem, mutual enemy, let's call it, uh, of the lions, they are able to put aside their differences and work together. And that is one of the themes of this movie is that when we do put aside our differences, uh, it's amazing what humans can do and put, uh, you know, and, and, and build together. Uh, you know, yeah, that basically is, is one of the themes of the film. So uh, Abdullah, yeah, begins to turn on Patterson and consequently progress on the bridge comes to a halt. Patterson requests soldiers from England uh, as protection, but he's denied. So Beaumont, from the beginning of the film, the person financing this whole operation, he uh, makes a brief visit to the site and he threatens Patterson, saying that if his commission uh, is not concluded on time, he'll tarnish his reputation. Um, he is also a little bit like dismissive. Of, well, I shouldn't say a little bit. He's very dismissive of the behavior of everyone here. People with malaria, he thinks they should just get up. People who are just scared of the lion should sack up and deal with it. He's... He's an asshole, and he even says in the film, you know, you're not going to like me, and uh, he was right. We don't like him. He's a prick. Um, he also announces that he will be contacting the famed hunter, Charles Remington, to join Patterson in eliminating the threat due to his past failures. Uh, Patterson basically says, that's great. I love Charles Remington. He sounds like a great guy, but once the time, but you know, by the time you find him and bring him here, uh, the lions are going to be dead and will be back on schedule. And uh, yeah, that kind of, <laughs> that's exactly what Beaumont wanted to hear. So he, so he leaves. Uh, so a short time later, um, you know, during an argument between Abdullah and, and Patterson, Abdullah basically threatening to leave the whole place, like bring his workers and get, and get them out of here. Um, Remington arrives. Remington is played by, uh, um, why am I forgetting his name? He's like the main actor, Michael Douglas. Remington's played by Michael Douglas and he's a fictional character. And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later in my thoughts on the accuracy of this movie. Um, but yeah. Remington arrives and he points a gun <laughs> at Abdullah's head uh, and basically sort of swings his dick around and convinces everyone to get back to work. Uh, yeah, so um, Remington, yeah, and he's also brought a, a company of skilled Maasai warriors um, who have dubbed the lions the ghost and the darkness. That's where you get this um, this title from. So because of their notorious methods, that's why they've been called the ghost and the darkness, Remington's initial attempt to trap one of the lions in a thicket fails when Patterson's borrowed gun misfire. So before they go out on their first sort of hunt together, Patterson swaps his gun, swaps his rifle with the doctor's rifle. The doctor thinks his rifle is uh, more powerful and maybe it is, but we never find out because it jams or it misfires um, and, and the, the lion gets away, but he is saved. Um, Remington does save the life of, 
of of Patterson, which is good because Patterson's a real nice guy. Um, the Warriors decide to leave. They're daunted by the beast. They're scared of the lions. Remington elects to stay behind. He constructs a new hospital tent for the sick and injured workers and tempts the lion to the abandoned building with animal parts and blood. The mandators seemingly fall for the trap, but Remington and Patterson shoot at them and they retreat to the new hospital, slaughtering many patients and Dr. Hawthorne. I should also mention this. Uh, they, they've elected not to talk about it in this synopsis that I'm reading, um, but... Patterson actually creates a really interesting, uh, well, he calls it his contraption, um, but it's it's basically an empty railway car with a door, uh, like a cage-like door that is held uh, up by a tripwire, and inside there's like a little cage, and then a bunch of dudes sit in the cage with guns. So basically the lion goes in and uh, trips over the tripwire, and the door closes, and the people in the cage shoot at the lion. And this actually works. The lion, you know, goes in, trips the thing, but the lion almost instantly throws its like really heavy weight against the bars of the uh, cage, which basically they rip out. And the warriors freak the fuck out and they're shooting at the lion, but they keep missing and they keep hitting the, the iron bars of the cage. And one of the idiots knocks over <laughs> an oil lantern, which lights the, ca- the whole thing on fire. And the, the lion escapes and the men thankfully survive as well. But they basically say, we're not doing that again. We're not fucking dealing with this shit. And they leave as well. Uh, but, you know, Remington states to Patterson, hey, that was a good idea you had with the cart. Um Yeah, <laughs> too bad it didn't work. I had the same idea. It also didn't work. Um so yeah, after the lions uh, do not fall for the attack on the on the abandoned hospital, and they attack the new one, and dozens of people die, including the doctor, who is an important character um, and important to the morale of many of the people that are there. Um, Abdullah and the railway workers depart, uh, and they all climb aboard this ma- this like very small train, piling aboard, leaving them, leaving Patterson and Remington and Samuel alone. So Remington and Patterson, they decide that they're going to locate um, the animals they, by following some fresh tracks, some fresh pug marks that Remington's discovered. And they follow the tracks and they discover the animal's supposed lair. And they discover the bones of dozens of victims, leading Remington to the realization that the lions are acting uh, as they have been merely for sport or, for, as he says, for pleasure the pleasure of killing. Back at the camp that evening, Patterson mounts a hunting stand in a clearing and lures one of the predators to his position using a baboon as bait. And this baboon is a real asshole, guys. You just have to watch the movie to know what I'm saying there. He's a real prick. The plan goes awry after Patterson <laughs> Patterson almost instantly falls off the stand because he gets attacked by an owl, which is quite funny. But Remington manages to slay the feline before it can leap on Patterson. He, Patterson, and Samuel spend the remainder of the night drinking and celebrating, and they hear the roars of the remaining lion, and they basically say, ah, he's like a bully. He's finally by himself. He's scared. Uh, but Samuel kind of is like, um, hey, guys, you know, it's still a fucking lion that's killed a bunch of guys. Maybe we should chill out. And Samuel's right. Uh, because they wake up the next morning after Patterson has a very scary dream, I should add, um, they wake up the next morning and they find that, um, the lion has devoured Remington, uh, as he slept, as they all slept. Um, yeah. So <laughs> Michael Douglas's Remington, who is presented like this badass character, he basically gets an off-screen death. Um, so they, they cremate Remington's remains and they burn the tall, they start like a, a, a grass fire basically surrounding the camp, driving the surviving lion towards a trap they've set, um, near the partially constructed bridge. So after a little bit of a chase, Patterson finally dispatches it with a double rifle shotgun that Samuel's thrown to him from a nearby tree. Abdullah and the work 
co-workers return and the bridge is completed on time. Patterson reunites with his wife and meets his son for the first time and it's very beautiful and it's a very 1990s style end of the movie where it's just like an extreme long shot of the camp and then the it fades to black and some sexy music starts. That's basically the whole plot of the movie. Obviously, there's stuff I've missed out trying to keep it um, short. Uh, but yeah, look, as a story, it's pretty close to accurate to what actually happened with some very notable exceptions, which we'll go into a second. So I think what we might do is we'll talk about we'll talk about the synopsis, we'll talk about the plot, which we just did, we'll talk about the filmmaking itself, uh, you know, how well the film is made, and then we'll talk about the accuracy or lack thereof um, at the end. And I think that's the, that'll be the... Um, the, the the structure of these Maneater movie episodes going forward. So, synopsis out of the way. Let's talk about the filmmaking itself. So, plot-wise, story-wise, screenplay-wise, it's actually fairly serviceable. It's actually fairly passable. Um, it has, obviously, a really great basis. The Maneaters of Sava by Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, who, you know, wrote a book about not just this story, but a bunch of stories that happened in Africa. Um, really interesting book. You should definitely read it. Um, who actually killed both of the lions, it's a great source material for any kind of movie. So, of course, you know, it was it was going to be good. Uh, and, it, and it was really good. I really enjoyed, you know, the plot. It was quite an interesting story. Some of the dialogue is a little bit clunky, a little bit awkward. Um, and there are, you know, there are kind of some, like, plot threads that are kind of left unanswered or just kind of don't go anywhere. It's it's not the best screenplay in the, in the world. Um, the screenplay, by the way, was written by William Goldman. He first, you know, started thinking of, turning this into a film when he was traveling in Africa in 1984 and he thought it would make a good script. So in 1989, he pitches the story to Paramount and he pitches it. And this is interesting. He pitches it as a cross between Lawrence of Arabia and Jaws. And they commissioned him to write the screenplay, which he delivered in 1990. And it is interesting that he talked about it being a cross between, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and Jaws, because as I was watching this movie, it kind of struck me how similar this movie is to Jaws. It's just Jaws on land. Jaws with lions, basically. Um, but it's obviously it pays homage to, to Jaws quite a lot. Um, Goldman says, My particular feeling is that they were evil. I believe that for nine months, evil popped out of the ground at Savo, which is an interesting take. I mean, you know, we at Man Eaters, don't, we don't really subscribe to the idea that animals can be evil. I think evil is really a, it's a man thing. It's a dude thing. It's a guy thing, man. It's a human thing. And, um, I, you know, animals, animals are animals. I don't think they have the capacity to, to really be, like, um, <laughs> evil. They're just animals. Sometimes they can be assholes. My cat's sitting right behind me. She scratches me all the time. She's a little shit, but she's not evil. She just does it because she thinks it's fun. Um, yeah, so um, the script fictionalizes Patterson's account, introducing an American big-game hunter called Charles Remington. The character was based on Anglo-Indian big-game hunter Charles H. Ryle, superintendent of the railway force. In initial drafts, the character's name was Redbeard, and Goldman says his purpose in the story was to create an imposing character who could be killed by the lions and make Patterson seem more brave. Goldman says his ideal casting for the role would have been Burt Lancaster. So interesting there, yeah. Um... In terms of filmmaking, like actual like cinematography, it's quite, you know, I liked it. It actually looks pretty good. Um, initially, I think that the, the director wanted uh, a different cinematographer, a cinematographer he'd worked with a lot, um, and the studio won out. They basically hired, um, who did they hire? I can't remember his name. Oh, yeah, Vilmos Sig Sigmund. Interesting name, Vilmos Sigmund. Um, yeah, he's a 
guy. He's one of the leading figures of American New Wave movement. I don't know what that means, but that's interesting. Um, yeah, so so it, it is shot quite well. There's some beautiful nature shots of all the you know the wildlife in Africa. Uh, and speaking of as well, the, the lions. What's interesting, I learned, and I'll, I'll talk a bit a bit of trivi- trivia later. Um, there's only one scene in the movie where they use like animatronic lions. And for the rest of the movie, they actually use real lions, a couple of lions from a zoo. Um, and one of those I saw passed away in 2001 from a lung cancer. <laughs> too smoking. Too much smoking, lion. Too much vaping. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that, that, I mean, that's interesting. And like I said, it is it is reminiscent to Jaws, how they, um, you know, they don't show you the lions very often. You barely get to see them. It's just like, it's that that horror movie thing of the, the less you see of the monster, the more scary it actually is. I really, I really dug that. Yeah. So let's move on. Yeah. So we've talked about the script. We've talked about the um, cinematography. The direction is pretty, you know, pretty solid. It's not the best movie ever. It's it it, it chugs along. I think that the um, you know it runs it runs for about 110 minutes. Um, I, I never found myself particularly bored by the movie. Um, it, so I think the director did a pretty serviceable job. Where this movie falls down is in its performances. My God, uh, Val Kilmer plays the main character. Um, you know Henry Patterson. Oh, okay. So firstly, he's got the worst Irish accent you've ever heard. It's garbage, guys. It's, it's awful. He, and he loses it halfway through the fucking movie. He just stops. It's like every now and again, he'll say a word in kind of like an Irish accent, but it's also hard to know because sometimes Americans like sound a little Irish with their accent anyway, just because of where their accent came from. Um, it's it's really bad, guys. His performance is so bland. Um, he's a handsome guy. Like he looks good in those boots, man, and he, with his hair all slicked back and he's all dirty because he's been wrestling lions in the mud. He looks sexy as hell, but he's bland as shit. And that's just unfortunate. And, and you know, he, I think he was nominated. Yeah, he, he was nominated for a Razzie in um, <laughs> the year that this movie came out. Where is it? Uh, he was nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Supporting Actor, which is interesting because he is the lead actor of this movie. Um, he was nominated for a Razzie for uh, for this movie, as well as The Island of Dr. Moreau. He was also nominated the same year for that. Um, but you know what? who doesn't get enough flack for being a terrible um, actor in this is is the other guy. It's Michael Douglas, who I love, by the way. I think Michael Douglas is a really good actor, just not in this movie. In this movie, he's such a boofhead. He, he can't, he's such a dickhead. He's like swinging his dick and doing weird. He's going, <laughs> he laughs like that constantly. <laughs> he's terrible as well. And he's not, he's not intimidating at all. Like, we just said that the the player, the, the, sorry, the screenwriter's goal was to create a like a really intimidating character who could die and make you think that the other guy was cooler than him. He's but this guy's not cool either. He's a fucking loser. He's an idiot. And the second he like he goes into this cave and he turns into a little bitch. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I don't I don't like his performance at all. These two guys suck. Um, you know the the other actors, the other supporting actors, John Carney, Brian McArdle, Bernard Hill. They're all good. They don't have much to do. Tom Wilkinson. He plays an asshole in everything. He plays an arsenal and this is good. Emily Mortimer is like one of the loves of my life. So she, she obviously was good. Um, but the two leads, Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer, they leave a lot to be desired. It's like they didn't really care a lot about what was going on. And actually, I'll get a little bit into the, the making of this movie in a little bit um, because it, it kind of explains why their performances are a little bit lackluster. Okay. So as a movie, as a, as a piece of cinema, um, this, this movie is, is fine. It's serviceable. If you, if this was on TV when I was growing up, I would have watched it and I would have been entertained and I was entertained just now when I watched it. Um, but it didn't blow me away. Um, let's talk about the accuracy. Like how is this as a, as a man eater movie? Okay. So 
I'm of two minds in this, okay? Um, on the one hand, you know, it's based off a real primary text from the guy who actually killed these lions. So obviously, by the way, firsthand accounts of things can be often, um, you know, changed to make the person seem a little bit better than they are. However, I think it has been generally agreed that the Man Eaters of Savo book is fairly accurate, and John Henry Patterson did a pretty accurate recounting of what, what happened. So as a piece of, you know, um, inspiration for the film, it's it's quite good. And obviously, I think most of the storyline fits in very well with what happened here. Um, so on the one hand, it, it gets really good points for accuracy um, on that front okay where it falls down is little things okay so one of them is the creation of remington as a character and his, his insertion into this movie um he never existed samuel existed um and so did um, you know i think mahina existed and um and and, and obviously patterson existed because he wrote the book um these guys were real people and they were really interesting fascinating real life characters who actually did this story to me, it's it's just that thing of like you, the story, the real story, the truth is such a fascinating tale. You don't need to embellish it and you don't need to add more. But they just needed to add this weird crocodile Dundee style douche canoe. Um, I don't know why to, to make the movie better. I didn't make the movie better. I don't know. It just, you know, it, it aided in some of the scenes where like... Um, you know, Patterson and him have these body moments and they're like they're bonding about being, I don't know, hunters or whatever. But like you could have just replaced him with Samuel, who's already in the movie, who doesn't really get enough to do. Just make them have the body moments, you know? Um, so I, that, you know, that's my big gripe. It's that, that, that obviously is not accurate. They've invented a whole other guy. And one of the most egregious things is Patterson killed both of these two lions on different nights, right? In real life. In the movie, they actually take the credit away from Patterson for one of the kills. The first man-eater is killed by Remington in this movie, who didn't even exist, who wasn't actually there. Um, and that's a big gripe for me. That's a big no-no. You got to give him the credit. Um, so I, I didn't like that. And the other thing, it's a very, very, very small thing, right? But it's, it's kind of inexcusable to get it wrong because we have them. So the actual men in the lines of Savo, they're, they're, they're um, taxidermied corpses or, or carcasses, I should say. They're still, they still exist. Um, they're in the Chicago Field Museum, I think, um, currently in Illinois, in the US. You can go visit them, apparently. You can go see them now. The movie explicitly says at the end, you can go see these animals in Chicago and you'll be scared when you look at them. Okay, so you can Google the, these animals and see what they look like. They are maneless lions. They do not have manes. That's, a, that's, that's one of the most distinct things about these animals. They don't have manes. The film just ignores that entirely. And all the lions in the film have manes, okay? They are maneless lions in real life. In this movie, they all have manes. I think the reason is because they used real lions for a lot of the filming of this. And for whatever reason, I don't know. This is the 1990s, so I guess like people didn't care as much back then. I would have thought you would just maybe shave the manes off the lions if you're going to do this. Maybe they weren't allowed to. Maybe that's the reason. Um, but it's, it's such a small detail, but it's so... Dumb. I don't know wh why they didn't figure out a way to do this. Um, that, so that obviously loses points for me. So in terms of accuracy, you know, if we're going to go of a score out of five, um, it can't be a five because they've made up an entire main character um, who who takes away from the story rather than than adding anything to it, in my opinion. And they also, you know, it's just a small little silly thing where they've just 
not been accurate in the appearance of these lines. So it can't be a five. The question then becomes, is it, is it a two or, is it, sorry, is it a three out of five or a four out of five? Now, the rest of the story is relatively correct. Um, there are questions about, you know, whether these lions actually did have um, all these bones of people in, in, in the cave. I think there's a little bit here about the historical accuracy. Um, but yeah, like, it, yeah, I, I'm going to go with a four. There's probably a few other things that are incorrect in this movie. Um, but in terms of, you know, how men in movies are usually portraying animals, um, you know, like there, there's so many men in movies where they just paint the animal out to be like some supernatural freak of nature monster that's just out to eat humans. Um, and, you know, in some ways this movie does that, but not in the ways that really matter. I guess that is another gripe I have. It, it doesn't lean as much into the supernatural as I had heard this movie did. Um, but a lot of these movies, they do play the supernatural stuff a little bit. And these things actually happen. This story is a historical story that actually happened. You don't need to embellish it and make it different when it actually happened. The actual story is so much more fascinating than whatever you want to twist it into. And I think that's just a problem that Hollywood has with a lot of historical drama. They just don't, they just don't trust in the historical story itself. And I think that's a little bit what's happening here. Nevertheless, I'm going to go, it's it's a four out of five for the for the accuracy. As a film, I'm going to say it's about a three out of five. And as a, you know, as a story, um, I've got to say it's a five out of five story. It's an incredible story. And because it's it's a real story. Okay. So that's, that's where I'm going there. Now, there is a little bit of, um, production information I wanted to talk about as well as trivia. Um, yes. So, um, where are we up to? Okay. Here. So according to Goldman, who was the screenwriter, Kevin Costner had expressed interest in playing Patterson, but Paramount wanted to use Tom Cruise who ultimately declined work on the film slowed until Michael Douglas moved his production unit with partner Stephen Rowther Constellation Films to Paramount. Douglas read the script and loved it, calling it an incredible thriller about events that actually took place. Douglas decided to produce and Stephen Hopkins was hired to direct. So that's interesting um, that, yeah, Michael Douglas was the producer of the movie before he signed on to act in it. Val Kilmer, who had just made Batman Forever and was a frequent visitor to Africa, expressed enthusiasm for the script, which enabled the project to be financed. The part of Remington was originally offered to Sean Connery and Anthony Hopkins, but both declined. The producers were considering asking Gerard Depardieu when Douglas decided to play the role himself. So... That's one of the reasons. Oh, <laughs> Stephen Hopkins later said he was unhappy about this. So, um, yeah, Douglas's performance is not great, probably because he just decided at a last minute just to fuck it. I'm going to do it as well as produce. So obviously, as he's acting, he's got his mind on other things as well, uh, including all the fucking shit that happened during the making of this movie. In early drafts of the script, Remington was originally going to be an enigmatic figure, but when Douglas was chosen to play him, the character's role was expanded and given history. In Goldman's book, Which Lie Did I Tell?, the screenwriter argues that Douglas's decision ruined the mystery of the character, making him a wimp and a loser. And I think I might agree with that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the making of this film as well. Um, so director Stephen Hopkins said about filming... We had snake bites, scorpion bites, tick bite fever, people getting hit by lightning, floods, torrential rain and lightning storms, hippos chasing people through the water, cars getting swept into the water, and several deaths of crew members, including two drownings. Val Kilmer came to the set under the worst conditions imaginable, and he was completely exhausted from doing the island of Dr. Moreau. 
He was dealing with the unfavorable publicity from that set. He was going through a divorce. He barely had time to get his teeth into this role before we started filming. And he is in nearly every scene in the film. But I worked with him six or seven days a week for four months under really adverse conditions and he really came through. He had a passion for the film. So there you go. That's maybe why Val Kilmer's performance isn't quite great either. He had a lot going on, including a divorce. Oh, that's so sad. So yeah, um... That, that kind of explains maybe the lackluster performance of the two leads there. A bit more trivia for you. Um, like I said before, only one scene used an animatronic lion. All the others were shot... Um, oh, sorry, all other shots were, were using two real-life lions named Bongo and Caesar. These same lions appeared in the 1970, uh, 1997 movie, George of the Jungle. In 1999, an interview with SFX Magazine, director Stephen Hopkins described his experience making this movie as a true nightmare. Michael Douglas, who was producing the film, decided at the last minute to play Remington. But the working relationship between Douglas and Hopkins uh, was tense even before filming. Douglas had the movie completely recut in post-production, removing 45 minutes to give himself more screen time. It explains the plot holes and storylines that go nowhere. Hopkins was not happy with the final cut of the film. Uh, yeah, and I've heard that story. A lot of actors who were also the producers recutting their films. I think Edward Norton did the same thing with, um, I think it was like American History X or something like that. Um, is that is that the, the title of that movie? I've heard that the director didn't like what he did with it. Yeah. Um, despite earning mixed critical response, including the Razzie nomination for Val Kilmer, the film did actually win an Academy Award uh, for sound editing, for supervising sound editor Bruce Stampler. And the movie has gained a cult following. William Goldman first heard uh, the story while traveling Africa. I've already told you about that one. Uh, Savo is the Akamba word for slaughter. The region has been called a place for slaughter due to a history of warfare between the Maasai and the Akamba. And in the movie, uh, that is sort of explained that Savo means a place of slaughter. The location where the bridge was built is now called Manita's Junction, after the two lions. It's in Savo East National Park, Kenya, about 200 miles southeast of Nairobi. Lieutenant Colonel Patterson owned the skins and skulls of the two cybermanning lions. However, in 1924, he sold them to the Field Museum in Chicago for $5,000. When working, uh, sorry, when the first field worker is uh, dragged from his bed by one of the lions, others can be heard shouting, Simba, Simba, Simba is the Swahili word for lion. Get it? It's a Lion King thing. There you go. Um, here we go. This is a, um, a bit of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, trivia just about like the actual attack itself. During the lion attacks at Savo, one young engineer was killed when a lion leapt through a screen window and into the railway carriage in which he had been sleeping. The lion dragged the body away and was found the next morning. They specifically built railway carriages, uh, which had many of the am am sorry, amenities now common in recreational vehicles. It can be seen in the railway museum in Nairobi. Visitors can board the carriage and sit on the re refitted bed where the engineer was attacked. That's fucked up. <laughs> Jesus. Until the 1980s, it had been maintained. Uh, it was maintained in dark green livery with a plaque beneath the window through which the line had entered left side two windows from the rear. The same railway car, repainted in turn-of-the-century beige livery, was used by Meryl Streep in the opening scenes of Out of Africa, including the scene in which her character first meets the character played by Robert Redford. Interesting. There you go. Look, there's a lot more uh, in interesting trivia um, you can find on imdb.com. That's where I'm finding a lot of this trivia as well. So let's go back about, you know, to the Man of Savo as a Man of movie. Where are we ending on this? Let's summarize what we've learned. Okay, so... 
As a movie, it's adequate. It's like a three out of five stars. As a story, uh, you know, it's quite interesting. Uh, let's go five out of five. And as a man-eater movie, as an accurate, you know, in terms of accuracy and and realism, you know, realism, it's it's a four out of five. We'll go with four out of five. So that you know, if we average that out, that makes it a four out of five man-eater movie. So what do we? What I, I always forget what our ranking device is. I'm just going to change it. Let's make it four out of five popcorn buckets, because I love popcorn. All right, guys, that is going to do it. That is our man eater movie, Man Eaters of Savo, the Ghost in the Darkness. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, big thanks to Pal of the Program, Marty Worrell, for reminding me about the existence of this here movie. Uh, good guy. Good guy. Good musician. Go listen to him play if you're ever in Newcastle. Guys, we're going to take a break now. Uh, We may have some messages. uh, We may not. And we're going to come back with our scratch of the day. So take it at ya. Oh, I hope you had a lovely break. I did. I had a glass of water. I lied on the bed and watched a couple TikToks. I fed the cat. What did you get up to in the break, guys? Did you... uh I don't know, read a book, go on a holiday. I don't know. Did you reconnect with a loved one? Did you try to fix a failing relationship? I don't know. However you spend your break is fine with me. Guys, it is time for the scratch of the day. So as you may be aware, the scratch of the day is the segment of the show where we read through animal attacks in the news recently and we, you know, we have a good chuckle if it's funny or we kind of go a bit quiet if it's a really sad one today. As always, I haven't read these stories ahead of time. We read these together. This is a, it's a discovery between the two of us. So our first uh, story, where the fuck is my script? Here it is. Our first story, uh, scratch of the day from uh, medicaldaily.com. Oh, this is a sad... (laughs) This is a super sad one, guys. Sorry. Girl, eight years old and brother die from rabies attack a week after each other. Ah, God. Okay. (laughs) This really isn't a funny one at all. It's actually quite, quite sad. We'll get the sad ones out of the way first, guys. Okay. Okay. So this is from, uh, yeah, medical.com. Um, medicaldaily.com, I should say. Girl, eight and brother die from rabies a week apart after wild animal attack. So... (sighs) <sighs> I'm warning you, it's sad. I should also give the warning that obviously this does include uh, talk about the death of children. If you want to skip forward, you can do that. Um, three young siblings were taken to hospital after a wild animal attack over the holidays, but only one of them survived. On Saturday, one of the three siblings, an eight-year-old girl, reportedly died from rabies after being bitten by bats earlier last month. The girl passed away a little more than a week after her seven-year-old brother died due to the same virus on December 28th, the Mirror reported. The two died at Dr. Aurelio Valdivicio General Hospital in the southern Mexican city of Oaxaca. The trio was from the remote mountain village of Palo de Lima in Mexico. They were attacked by bats in early December. Specific details about the attack were not immediately known. Hospital chiefs confirmed the girl's passing due to the rabies virus this week. Meanwhile, tests did not show her brother had the same virus until after his death. A third sibling, a two-year-old girl, was also taken to the hospital for treatment. The little girl was bitten was bitten on the back by bats. She stayed at the facility for nine days for her treatment. She's since been released, according to the Daily Star. Through the wild animal, though the wild animal attack happened earlier this month. 
The three were only taken to the hospital weeks later with the help of their grandfather. Authorities said poverty prevented the kids' families from sending them there sooner. She was admitted to the hospital on December 21st, 2022 with health problems after being bitten by a bat and was diagnosed as being in a serious state of health by experts who evaluated her, Oksaka's health service said in a statement issued after the girl's passing. During her stay in the medical center, a group of multidisciplinary specialists were keeping a close eye on her evolution. However, she suffered an irreparable damage to her health, which resulted in a tragic death, the facility explained. Official data from the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, aka the CDC, showed that cases of human rabies infections in the United States are rare, with only one to three cases being reported each year. In the past decade, from 2009 to 2019, only 25 cases of human rabies infections have been reported in the country. Seven of the cases acquired the virus outside the US and its territories, according to the Public Health Agency. Thanks to animal control and vaccination programs, the number of human rabies deaths in the country has steadily declined. The disease is almost always fatal in humans, but it is preventable if the treatment is promptly administered after exposure to rabies uh, to rabid animals, as per the CDC guidelines. Okay, yeah, like, as I said, sorry, my TikTok's going off. As I said, super duper sad story. Um, the only kind of solace there, I guess, is that the, the two-year-old uh, child is still alive. Um, okay, moving on. Our next story is from Newsweek, and it involves uh, dogs. And like as I have said in the past, when I look for these man-eater stories, um, constantly the one animal that always pops up is dog attacks. Um, constantly, people, children and old people, especially, being attacked by students, the, the, by by dogs. This one's crazy though. This one's really like really wild. The title is pitbulls maul staff and students as 21 are injured in Missouri school attack. 21, it's like a mass shooting, but it's a mass, it's a mass dogging. Okay. Again, not super funny, this, this story, but, um, hopefully not as traumatic as the kids being uh, diagnosed with rabies and dying. So a dog attack in a school playground has left 21 people injured in Springfield, Missouri. On Tuesday, December 20th, staff and students at Willard Intermediate South School were injured when two dogs identified as a a pit bull mixed breed made their way into the playground. The incident occurred during afternoon recess shortly after 1pm at the Intermediate School, which teaches students in grades 5 and 6. Heather Harmon Michael, Director of Communications and Public Relations for Willard School District, told Newsweek, Newsweek, There was an incident during recess in which neighborhood dogs got onto the playground and injured several students and teachers. Parents of students who were affected were contacted and ambulances were on site to assess and treat any individuals. Of 21 individuals involved, 18 were students and 3 were teachers. Not all of those injured were hurt by the animals, but some suffered injuries after becoming caught up in the melee that followed as people rushed to the school building to shelter from the attacking animals. Three teachers and three students sustained injuries that required medical attention after suffering bites and scratches. They were seen to by school nurses and first responders before being transported to hospitals, uh, local hospitals by ambulance. More than 4.5 million people are bitten by dogs each year in the U.S., and more than 800,000 receive medical attention as a result, according to data from the CDC. School employees, school police officers, first responders, and Greene County Animal Services responded to the incident where the dogs were quickly captured. Animal Control located the animals, and the owner gave up possession of them voluntarily, said Harmon Michael. Cara Edwin from Springfield Greene County Health told Newsweek, 
The dogs were euthanized in order to be tested for rabies. The test will be completed today, and we expect to have results within the next couple of days. During the investigation, it was determined that one of the dogs was not vaccinated, and no proof could be provided that the other was up to date on its vaccinations. Thankfully, none of those affected was seriously injured, Michael Hammond said. Everyone who was taken for additional medical assessment was brought back home last night. Willard Intermediate South is open on Wednesday, but will have an indoor recess. Additional staff and counselors will also be on campus in the morning to provide any support and resources students and staff may need. Harmon Michael said, When any situation occurs, we come together to discuss what happened, what could have been done differently, and what we can do in the future to prevent similar occurrences from happening. Those are the conversations we will be having in the days and weeks ahead. We are encouraging our neighbors to be cognizant, cognizant, cognizant of keeping their animals contained near all our campuses as we continue to encourage outdoor play. We want to thank the Intermediate South staff who responded quickly to the situation and other district staff who were on site quickly to provide assessments. So that is, you know, obviously a pretty okay outcome um, considering all the things that could have possibly happened. I really expected that story to include some uh, poor kid uh, being mauled to death, unfortunately, because it does happen quite a lot. If you Google animal attack uh, and go to the news tab on Google, uh, man, like like 80% of them are, are dog attacks. It's crazy. Uh, speaking of which, in the coming weeks, we're going to have a series, a list series, like we did with the bears. Um, I found a list of every single... Um, not every single, but every documented uh, fatal and I think non-fatal dog attack in the U.S. So we're going to do a, a multi-part series on that in the coming weeks as well. So stay tuned for that, um, unless you're scared of dogs, in which case I guess I guess don't. Don't stay tuned for that. Final story. This one comes from my backyard. Boy, he's five years old, attacked multiple times by a dingo. A five-year-old boy has suffered injuries to his hand, arms, and back after a dingo attacked him while on a campsite in Queensland. A young boy has been bitten multiple times by a dingo at a campsite in Kigari. The five-year-old was at Ocean Lake Campground on the island, formerly known as Fraser Island in Queensland, where he suffered injuries to his head, arm, back in the attack. I should say Fraser Island. I didn't really know that it had actually been changed, uh, the name, but uh, Fraser Island, infamous for dingo attacks. Uh, you know, there is only, I think, one documented death from a dingo. It, of course, is uh, baby Azaria Chamberlain. However, there is a question about whether a British man was killed by a dingo on Fraser Island. That is a story we might tackle at some point as well. Back to the story. Oh, I don't have to do an accent for this one because it's my own. I'll just go, I'll go way over the top for it. Ready? Paramedics, including rescue helicopters, have transported one child patient in a stable condition to Hervey Bay Hospital after a reported animal attack at 4.08pm, mate. That's my Australian accent if I was trying to do it really hard. Queensland ambulances said in a tweet on Sunday around 8pm. A Queensland ambulance spokesperson said the boy had multiple bites to his arms and around the back of his legs. They don't appear to be overly serious, but they haven't provided a full report at this stage, she said to the Brisbane Times. The boy's parents reported the incident to an ambulance crew with spokesperson saying she presumes the pair saw the dog, uh, sorry, the dingo bite their son. However, she was unsure of the details of the incident. This tweet reads from uh, Queensland Ambulance. Hashtag Fraser Island. Paramedics, including rescue helicopter, have transported one child patient in a stable condition to Harvey Bay Hospital after a reported animal attack at 4.08 p.m. No further details available. It only has six likes. That's Australian news for you. 
This comes after a toddler suffered deep puncture wounds inflicted by a dingo last year. The two-year-old sustained significant injuries to his legs, arms, neck, shoulder, and head. Neighbors at Orchid Bridge on the island's northeastern coast raised the alarm at the time after hearing a commotion. The two-year-old had wandered outside while his family was asleep and was approached by the dingo. The dingo bit the boy on many parts of his body, including the back of his head. While dingoes are a curious native predator on the island, bites are not common. One person, however, has died from a... Oh, okay, interesting. One person, however, has died from a dingo attack. On April 20th, 2001, nine-year-old Clinton Gage was attacked and killed by two dingoes near Wadi Point on Kingari. The boy's death prompted a dingo call with around 200 dingoes on Kungari currently and the launch of a dingo management strategy in 2013. There you go. Okay, I was wrong about only one person ever dying from a dingo attack. Apparently, nine-year-old Clinton Gage was too. We may look into that story as well. Maybe we'll just do a, a special on dingoes at some point. Um, but yeah, there you go. Those are your three Scratch of the Day stories, guys. Hopefully, uh, you know, <laughs> only one of them... Re- just deadly serious in, in what it was. Uh, but yeah, obviously tragic incidents, all of them involving children. Next week, I'll try to not have that happen. Uh, but if you want to read those stories yourself, um, the links, as always, are in the description of this podcast, wherever you're listening. Okay, we're going to move on, everybody. Let's go on to our beastly bio. Beastly Bio, guys, is our chance to talk about the biology of some animals that we don't really get a chance to talk about on the show. You know, we talk about sharks and bears and wolves a lot, um, but, you know, there are some potentially man-eating animals, some deadly, dangerous animals that don't ever get a spotlight because they're not really serial killer animals. So today we're focusing on one of those. We're talking about the jaguar. So the jaguar is a large cat species and the only living member of the genus Panthera native to the Americas. With a body length of up to 1.85 meters and a weight of up to 158 kilograms, it is the largest cat species in the Americas and the third largest in the world, second to tigers and lions. It Sorry, third to tigers and lions. It is distinctively mar- its distinctively marked coat features pale yellow to tan-colored fur, covered in spots that transition to rosettes on the sides, through to a mes- uh, melanistic black coat that appears on some individuals. The jaguar's powerful bite allows it to pierce the ca- the carapaces of turtles and tortoises and employ an unusual killing method. It bites directly through the skull of mammalian prey between the ears to deliver a fatal blow to the brain. That's very cool. The modern jaguar's ancestors probably entered the Americas from Eurasia during the early Pleistocene era via the land bridge that once spanned the Bering Strait. Today, the jaguar's range extends from coarse southwestern United States across Mexico and much of uh, Central America, the Amazon rainforest and south to Paraguay and northern Argentina. It inhabits a variety of forested and open terrains, but its preferred habitat is tropical and subtropical moist broadleaf forest, wetlands, and wooded regions. It is an adept at swimming and is a largely solitary, opportunistic stalk and ambush apex predator. As a keystone species, it plays an important role in stabilizing ecosystems and in regulating prey populations. 
So the uh, population size of the Jaguar is about 15,000 members. Jaguars can live from between 11 to 20 years. Its top speed on land is a phenomenal 80 kilometers per hour. As stated, it can weigh up to, well, this is 56 to 96 kilograms, but the uh, the buyer just said 158 kilograms. Let's go with 96 and just say that's what it probably is. It can grow up to 1.8 meters long. Now, the location, there are quite a number of countries that this animal can live in. Argentina, Belize, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Guatemala, Guyana, Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Suriname, the United States, and Venezuela. The only one that surprises me there is the United States. I didn't know that Jaguar actually could live there, but apparently they do. Maybe in like Florida, or I'm not really sure. Interesting. So the diet of the jaguar. The, ja- the jaguar's diet mostly consists of medium-sized mammals such as deer, capybara, tapir, and pecaries. I don't know what that is. Those are pecaries, in which they silently stalk through the thick jungle. In water, jaguar hunt fish, turtles, and even small caiman. The jaguar is an aggressive and formidable hunter and is believed to eat over 80 different species of animals. Now, I've placed this uh, jaguar as, you know, for a man-eater status, moderate to high. There are not a huge number of, um, you know, modern documented cases of people being eaten or killed by a jaguar. However, attacks can be quite common and, uh, you know, indigenous tribes in the area obviously fear these animals. So it's a moderate to high status as a man-eater, I would say. Here's some fun facts about the jaguar. The word jaguar comes from a Native American word, jaguar, meaning he who kills with one leap. That's cool. That's badass. Jaguars have eyesight that is six times better than that of humans at night and in darker condition thanks to a layer of tissue at the back of their eyes that reflects the light. Jaguars that are black with spots are sometimes called panthers. They are actually jaguars. Jaguars wave their tails above the water to attract fish. That's interesting. The jaguar can dive into the water to catch prey. Jaguars living in the forest are smaller and darker uh, than those in open areas. Here's the last fact. Unlike other felines, the jaguar, while eating its prey, starts at the neck and chest. Interesting. It moves down. Unlike the lions in the Savo movie they they start at the top and work their way down there you go that's a beastly biography on the jaguar maybe one day we'll cover some stories of people being attacked by jaguars but i guess some idiot has to get eaten by one first and document it with lots and lots of information let's move on to the final thing of the day before we wrap up our episode it's the man eater trivia time yippee dippy so last week's question According to Desmond Morris, author of The Naked Ape and many other books about human biology, there are only three species that regularly prey on humans. Which of the following does he not mention? A. Wolves. B. Crocodile. C. Tigers. D. Sharks. Okay, so I mentioned last week this question actually confused me. I actually got this wrong, okay, and it's, and it's confusing, so we're going to talk about it. Well, straight, I'll tell you the answer first and we'll talk about it. So the answer is actually, well, actually, I'll tell you the results of our Instagram poll. About It was a 50-50 split. No one voted for crocodiles. No one voted for tigers. And I think that's pretty obvious in what we've talked about on the show before. 50% voted for wolves. 50% voted for sharks. Now, the answer that this website has given me is that the answer is A, wolves. Interesting. Now, when I first did this quiz, I actually said sharks because we know that wolves have hunted people in the past. Uh, 
and sharks, you know, when they do kill people, it's usually not on purpose. However, the question is, according to Desmond Morris in this book, which which of the following does he not mention? And he just didn't mention that. So if you answered sharks or wolves, I think that's a very respectable answer. I wouldn't count you wrong. So well done everyone who voted for that one on the Instagram, because none of you voted for crocodiles or tigers, which is obviously the wrong answer. So in the and also he also mentions specifically three species. He says great white sharks, Nile crocodiles, and Bengal tigers. Those are the th- Bengal tigers. I think he said Bengal tigers. Those are the three tigers, uh, three species that he said regularly hunt. For the sake of the question, he just boiled it down to which of these like broader species of animals did it. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think. Let's talk about this week's question, okay? So we're going to talk about sharks now in this question. Which of the following are not generally accepted as being man-eaters? Which of the following are not generally accepted as being man-eaters? A, great white shark. B, the Mako shark. C, the oceanic white tip shark. Or D, the bull shark. I'll read that one more time. Which of the following are not generally accepted as being man-eaters? A, great white shark. B, Mako shark. C, oceanic white tip shark. Or D, the bull shark. I will put this question up on our Instagram. You can vote in the poll and we'll see what you have to say. And I will answer the question next week. Guys, that is our episode. Thank you so much for joining us yet again for another episode of Man Eaters. Thank you for supporting Man Eater Movies. I like watching movies. I like talking about movies. I appreciate you doing it as well. This is our third episode doing this. What are the other ones we did? We did Jaws, obviously, and we did The Grey. And The Grey actually did really well. So if you like these episodes, be sure to give it a like or a thumbs up or a rating. Just do the thing. Do all the bullshit. Follow me on all the social media. Links are there. If you have any suggestions for Man Eater movies in the future, please do not hesitate to send those through to me. You can do it on any social media. You can do it to the email. Um, before I go, I really quickly want to shout out a couple people. I want to shout out my friend Dom, who gave some really lovely feedback to the podcast. A beautiful soul named Sean, who messaged me on the Man Eaters Instagram, and a lovely name, lady named Stephanie for doing the same thing as well. So thank you to those people for reaching out. I love hearing from your beautiful faces. If you have any feedback, any suggestions, any uh, ideas for stories for the for the scratch of the day, any suggestions for stories for the main Man Eaters stories, uh, you can leave those in any of the social media places or via email. I don't mind. I'll get back to you. A quick, oh, this is a very special shout out and it's very overdue. So it starts off with an apology. I'm giving our first ever Patreon shout out. Uh, Now, as you know, we do have a Patreon. There are different tiers, but if you donate to the top tier, which I believe is $20, which I believe, I think that's the crocodile tier uh, or is it the tiger tier? I'm going to look it up right now because I can't remember. I think it's the tiger tier. Is it the crocodile tier? God, there's crocodile, there's tiger, and there's bear tier, I think. Where are we? we? Man-eaters. What? Where is it? What the heck? Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Whoa, hold on, guys. (laughs) We're nearly there. We have... Yes, $20 is the crocodile tier. And if you donate to the uh, crocodile tier, well, you get an extra little thing. You get a little sexy shout out um, <laughs> on the uh, on the page. Yes, if you're a crocodile tier members, you get all the other things that everyone else gets, but you get a special shout out uh, on our uh, podcast, which is what's happening now. So I would like to give this super special shout out to 
Dawn, friend of the show, Dawn, who has been a Patreon patron for a while, I should add. They've been there since the very beginning, a day one supporter. Uh, so thank you so much, Dawn. I really appreciate your support. Love your face. Love your mouth. I don't know. I assume. I'm sure you're beautiful inside and out. Thank you, Dawn, so, so much for that. If you would like to become a supporter of this podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash man. It is all kinds of stuff going up there. The more people that join, the more stuff I'll post. Uh, I'd love to do some behind the scenes q and and stuff like that once we get uh, over maybe 10 members or something like that. So please sign up if you have the cash. If you'd like to uh, share that with your boy, uh, I'd love that as well. If you don't have it, please do not worry. I will continue to be doing this for free forever <laughs> and ever uh, and ever until I'm dead. Hopefully from a, from a, an attack. Now this next weekend I'm going away. I'm going to the Gold Coast for a little holiday, so there may not be an episode. Uh, so I might see you in a week, or I might see you in two weeks with another episode of Man Eaters. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. I'm eternally grateful. Have a fantastic day, and remember, please stay safe, because as we've learned, there's a jungle out there.